We'll be in Romans 14 if you want to turn there. But before we begin, I forgot to mention something that needs to be discussed. Um, Our president, as you all know, gave a speech this week that was definitely not one of unity or attempting to unify the country. And uh, there's been a poll sense that somewhere around 40% of the people in our country believe that there might be a civil war or there will be a civil war. That's a big percentage. And we do need to pray for our leaders. And folks, I don't have to tell you that this is all about What's happening in our country is all about turning away from God and his truth. And where you and I need to be ever more diligent and ever more faithful to what our God has given us in his word and in his life in us. So with this, let's just take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for... You are the God in charge, and Father, yet you give us the freedom to make choices. And unfortunately, all through history, people that you created to love and to bless have turned against you, against your ways, and uh, hated you. And, Father, we are all concerned in what's happening in our country. And, Father, we do pray for our leaders. We know that their need is Jesus Christ and salvation through you alone. And, Father, to learn that you alone bring freedom. And you are the God that we can trust in every area of our lives. And, Father, for each of us, Father, that uh, we learn to grow in our faith and trust you, that we can rest no matter what comes, that we can rest in you. And, uh, Father, um, again, thank you for being here, for all that you do. And, again, we pray for our leaders and their need to know you and to know you better. As we praise you in your wonderful name, amen. Excuse me. I read recently that Harrison Ford net worth is approximately three hundred million. Boy, if I had that, I could retire. <laughs> His wealth has enabled him in two months to make eight trips in his private jet roughly 5,284 miles. In these trips, his plane emitted about 35 metric tons of carbon dioxide in less than two months. Ever wonder who follows his plane around and weighs these uh, emissions? The reason I've learned all these interesting details is because some like to know if a person's life manifests what they say they believe. If I understood correctly, part of those trips were taking him to speak on the evils of carbon emissions. It seems Mr. Ford and his jet has emitted more carbon into the environment in less than two months than you and I do every two years. 
and the average person worldwide burns every nine years. The average carbon footprint for an American is 16 tons a year, while the average person worldwide burns about four tons a year. This is according to the Nature Conservancy. I've got to be somebody around to uh, study out important things. You know what I think about Mr. Ford? I think that he is welcome to the money that he has earned and that he can use it and feel free to buy a jet and fly anywhere he wants to. That's what I believe. That's what I think. This is America in the land of the free, and we are able to work and to earn and to use our money in the way that we wish. But do you know what Mr. Ford and many wealthy people like him seem to think of me and you? He thinks that I should drive an electric car I can't afford and drive, bike, or walk to the movies so that he can continue to make lots of money and put as much carbon dioxide in the air as he so desires. In effect, he wants to use my share of the fossil fuels available and yours. If 13 of us gave up our right to emit our carbon emissions, or 52 people worldwide quit emitting four tons a year, it will allow Mr. Ford to continue to travel as he did in those two months all year long. Now think of that. Without harming the planet any more than it supposedly is. Trying to save the planet, which no one can do, seems to be his priority over your and my freedom. In essence, Mr. Ford, whether he says it or not, manifests grace for me, but none for thee. We can be upset at biblically ignorant people for their self-centeredness, but in Romans 14, Paul is addressing this very same thing that comes into the church, control versus freedom based on where a person is in his or her maturity. Judging and condemnation, contempt for those that see things differently than we do or haven't come along in their maturity. It's important in the church we all have differences of opinion. That's just a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> I was just looking at our carpet again. Obviously, can't help but see it up here. The people that laid the carpet in this church when it was built definitely have a different of opinion than so many of us today. <laughs> we, we are looking forward to the day when we can put new carpet in our church. <laughs> um, again, Scripture, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let he convince in his own mind, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Paul, without saying who, is this, who are the spiritual, is pointing out opposites in people's opinion of things. One believes one thing, while another believes just the opposite. 
Paul didn't say one believes the truth while the other doesn't, as he is laying the groundwork of bringing along a weaker brother. And this is what this is about. There are always weaker people within the church. That's a given. All right, as you know, at 31 years old, I was definitely the weaker brother in my church. I was a babe in Christ at 31 years old. I didn't know anything, uh, scripturally or anything. And, uh, and then there were people that were mature and knew a lot about scripture and uh, much more, well, <laughs> just the opposite, I guess. <clears throat> There's always weaker people. There are those who understand and believe the truth for us today and for the most part are living in faith uh, and grace, by faith and grace, while others haven't come to the liberty that they have in Christ. It is interesting, both the weak and the strong are missing the mark, and that's why Paul's dealing with both. The weak judging the strong for their lack of legalism, and the strong in contempt for the weaker Christian lack of freedom, still living under laws that uh, we're not under or that they've made up on their own. So Paul is in saying the weak make holy or sacred days. All right, and this is what this is about. They choose days that they've made holy or secret. Sacred themes one day above another. There are those who see Saturday as a holy day, as the Sabbath still. And that's the day that they set aside from Friday evening till Saturday evening, their Sabbath. They go back as far as Genesis 2, 2 and 3a. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. But it's interesting, and then we go into the law where it was a day of rest, but it wasn't always on Saturday. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but it gets really confusing. <laughs> That's why I'm not going into it. Um, as when the Sabbath was. Now, there's one day every month on the same day of the month, okay, say the 15th of September, uh, as an example. And so every 15th of the month was a Saturday. Well, we know how that works. Every 15th of the month is not a Saturday. So, but it was a Sabbath. Now, Dr. Bedore, a few years ago, worked on the resurrection week um, and the timetable because I had been confusion. It was not three days and three nights that Christ was in uh, the tomb if we start on Friday and go through Sunday morning. It, it, it doesn't work. And that's new math. Under new math, it might work, but under the, the uh, true math, it doesn't work, it doesn't hold up. So it took him a long time, and he figured out, you know, again, there was a couple of Sabbaths that week, and different things that happened, and finally he got this chart that I go through uh, now and again on Resurrection Sunday, and it's very interesting, but it took him a long time to do this, because Saturday 
is not in the, the died in the wool only Sabbath, if you will. And uh, but of course, most people don't know that, and they want to go. And a lot of people have gone back to uh, Saturday being the Sabbath. More common today is that many have made Sunday the Sabbath. And they make a law out of it in the sense of, well, let's say the church that I was saved in, there was Sunday morning, Sunday uh, worship, Sunday school, twice a month, Sunday evening, and then Wednesday night. Well, the strong were there. No, excuse me, the, the weak were there. The weak were there. See, this is a holy time. Uh, this is a time that shows your spirituality, that you're there, and look at contempt with the other. Now, this is real subtle. Uh, it wasn't like anybody else got nailed for following these uh, rules, if you will. But uh, it's important for us to see that uh, people, we, 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 we make laws or or. Uh, things that uh, just aren't there, that aren't scripture. The law has been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the law. He kept the law perfectly his entire life and therefore fulfilled the law. And the law is, we're no longer under it. You and I have never been under it, uh, but the the law is no longer there. In fact, scripture gives a very uh, clear description of what the law is for And uh, none of us would like that uh, labeled on us. But uh, uh, today we're under grace. And Jesus rose from the dead Sunday, the first day of the week. I want to read this from a commentator. Excuse me. We do not observe the first day of the week. We celebrate it. It is a new day with a new name. It is announced in the Psalms 118, 22 through 24, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in, his eye, in our eyes. This is a day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. And the New Testament tells us that Christ's death is revealed in the analogy of the rejected stone. The day which the Lord had appointed when he rejected the rejected stone Christ would become the headstone of the corner is the day of the resurrection. This makes Sunday the Lord's day. Sixty years after Christ rose from the dead, dead, John spoke of being in the spirit on the Lord's day, Revelation 1.10. By this time, the early believers were all celebrating the first day of the week. It should be noted that every important event recorded in the New Testament after Christ's resurrection fell on the first day of the week. If someone suggests that there is no formal direct command to keep the first day of the week, we reply that there is an explicit command against keeping the Sabbath day and the lack of a commandment for the first day is quite in keeping with the nature of the day and the nature of grace. It is not a commandment. A believer free in God's grace realizes that every day is the Lord's and that he, she learns to live it for him. The weaker brother is observing the day, believing he is pleasing the Lord. This is very important. 
the stronger brother goes beyond in knowing each day is the Lord's. This is the Lord's day. I belong to him, it's his, and it's his day. Uh, today is his day. De- uh, getting up in the morning, Lord, what's your plans for me today? What is it you're going to have me to do? And may I glorify you in the day ahead. One focuses on the day, what he believes. The other is focusing on the Lord. I always remember my pastor I saved under. Somebody would say to him, oh, and we know the Sunday is the Lord's day. And his reply was, oh, who do the rest of them belong to? (laughs) Who do the rest of the days belong to? So one observes one thing and another observe another. Here we see those following the old dietary laws of the Old Testament. Some because they believe it honors God. Others believe, I know at least few families believe it's a healthier diet. So they follow the old laws and actually can divorce themselves from it being a law. Um, I have a niece who grew up in, uh, whose husband was a Christian, growing up in a Christian family in Israel. And he, I guess uh, they had a real burden for seeing the Jews saved. And uh, they followed the Jewish dietary law, still do. And uh, it's really interesting. Uh, our He's a fun guy and likable guy. And uh, my grandsons uh, have a good time when he's in the area. And, but I warned him. I said, never trust a guy that doesn't eat bacon. <laughs> but we get, we get caught up in these kind of things. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, my niece, we were to a movie, the whole family, and... Uh, or to a, a movie that serves meals. We weren't in our state. And uh, wine with the meals if you want it. And uh, she wouldn't touch anything that was outside of her dietary laws, but she staggered out of the movie from a little bit too much wine. Uh, that, that's a clear no-no in Scripture, but uh, the other isn't. In fact, it isn't in Scripture at all for us. The strong in the faith know that no food is taboo for us today. See, in reality, Paul deals with this in enough other places, but the context is have unity. Have unity in your differences of opinion. Don't be treating somebody like a lesser person because of your opinion on what you're, you think you're supposed to be doing. But they are, these aren't gray areas, but they're the mixing of law and grace, and which equals religion. Uh, I love to say this to people that uh, uh, start to downplay religion, and I tell them, you will find no one that hates religion more than I do. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship with the living God. He is my father, and I am his child. Religion is that what we try to do to please God on our own, in our own way, in our own thinking, 
rather than trusting him and believing what she has done for us and in the grace that we're living in today. Excuse me. Another uh, comment by commentator. In light of all this, let us turn with horror from mingling law with grace. Let us turn from any thought of Sabbath keeping. Let us remember that we are a new people made alive through the work of the Holy Spirit that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in him. Let us understand that old things have passed away, that all things are new. We are the people of grace. We were made alive by grace. We live by grace. We stand by grace. We walk by grace. We are maintained by grace. We hope in grace, and we wait for the full accomplishment of grace. And I would add here, and we should be full of grace. So we hate what really is religion, but we are called to love those who haven't yet seen the truth. They're still the Lord's. Again, our commentator, the whole idea is that there are those who have absolutely opposite views on questions like this and that God accepts both of them. Each must follow what he believes to be correct. He is not to contend about matter which are scruples, matters which are scruples to some and liberty to others. The most important feature of this 14th chapter of Romans is that the Apostle Paul decides nothing. Notice this as we go through this. He decides nothing. He's talking about how do you treat your brother? How do you look at your brother and sister in Christ? He does not take sides. He does not state his own opinion or attitude. Each believer is responsible to God according to the dictates of his own conscience. We know what Paul knows as a truth through his other scriptures, including Romans, tells us the truth about what's right and wrong in this area. Although Paul does so in other areas, the context here is unity that he is stressing. We're really looking at maturity versus immaturity on the road of righteousness. There's both, there's immaturity and more mature, but still, if you're into um, um, putting people down because of what they don't do or contempt, contempt of others because they do do things that aren't called, uh, you're wrong. We're wrong. One believes the truth in an area while another does not. Paul is clear in this in the beginning of the chapter as he writes, receive one who is what? Weak in the faith. Receive them. <clears throat> Don't quarrel over their lack of belief in grace. So our scripture talks about faith. It's what their faith is in, but it's faith that has been misled. What is important is that the person living under laws is doing it by faith. 
I believe I'm doing what's right because it's in Scripture. I haven't come to that place in my life where I see the truth in Scripture. Though it's off time, of course, and it's happening all over the world today in churches where the pastor, the preacher, misleads people in the commingling of law and grace. This is what you've got to do. You have to do rather than know God wants you to believe him, his truth, our relationship with him. So what is important, the person living under laws is doing it by faith. He believes he is honoring his lords in the thing that he is doing. And that's why we need to be sensitive to others. See, people that know more may stronger and living in freedom, um, that's what they have to pass on to those that aren't there yet. Uh, contempt for them doesn't do that. Anybody wants to follow somebody that thinks you're contemptible? <laughs> I don't. Uh, and I know you don't either. We don't, no. It's grace that attracts us, grace that, attra- that draws us. I've seen Christian leaders that uh, you would know the names of them. They get so excited when they hear, hear grace, and yet they preach a mingling of grace and law and ruin scripture accordingly. Paul knows it is grace that teaches us, not laws. That's why uh, grace is so important to be proclaimed and lived out. It's grace that teaches us. We already know that we don't measure up. We already know it in our hearts that we can't live perfectly. We know that, whether we admit it or not. Some don't. <laughs> um, but we know it. We know we can't live perfectly. And uh, that's what the law teaches us. But it's grace that, that, that teaches and changes and, and, and shows us the truth and causes us to believe the truth. Coming up in chapter 15, Paul tells us in 15, uh, one and two, the strong need to bear with the scruples of the weak. And as we bear with them, it keeps the door open for what? Edification. For edification, we need to bear up. We need to bear with a p- person or people where, where they are and to bring them, them along. We need to, the only way we can edify them is not to be contemptible of them, but to treat them in grace, where they see the grace of God and desire the grace of God. The problem, of course, on both sides, and why Paul has to deal with this, is that of pride. The weak can take pride in the unbiblical laws they have made for themselves and judge the strong while the strong can become prideful in their freedom and express contempt. And I always remember, you know, I was a Christian about six, seven years. The Lord began to show me my relationship in a personal way. Uh, And one night in particular where it came home to me that he is my father and I'm his child, and it changed my life. You know what? It set me free. You know what else? I became proud of my freedom and uh, contemptible towards those that weren't. And I had a man, thankfully, he nailed my hide right to the wall and said, you may be in free and grace, but pride's coming across in the way you presented it. And uh, 
it was really good. I didn't like it at the time, obviously, but I saw the truth of what he was saying and uh, turned away from that. We need to be reminded both those who disagree with us and those who agree with us have been redeemed by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The love that won us will ultimately enable us to love all who have been loved by our God and Savior. But whatever the attitudes or practices of any man, the strong believer will camp out with Paul in Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then Paul goes on, and as he usually does, again, brings it back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Lord, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Paul directing us back to the truth, Jesus Christ, who will always direct us to grace. The primary problem is things that these things take our focus off the Lord and put it on whatever we're doing and believing. We've been there. But how we live should always be with a mindset is we belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. I belong to you, Lord. What is it that you have me to do in this situation with this person? Notice again how Paul doesn't berate or threaten, but gives a positive truth that none of us lives to himself. We live to the Lord with him as our focus. That's the goal. And when we die, we die to the Lord. In his timing, we go directly into his presence. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of where each of us is in our walk with him. An open heart will allow a person to grow in his grace and be taught by him the truth that sets them free. Then Paul writes a beautiful foundational truth as a reminder that Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of our life while we live and definitely Lord of our life in death in this world. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. We need to be reminded from time to time, don't we, don't we, of why Christ died. Number one, to reconcile the believer by dying for our sins. Second Corinthians five nineteen tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us a word of reconciliation. And we do that through grace, not laws. Number two, all the demands of God were satisfied by the death of Christ. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Our sins taken away, made righteous, completely righteous as he is, uh, is why he had to die. We can't be in heaven unless we are as perfect as he is, and that's what he made us as we trust Christ as Savior, as as righteous as he is, and that's what allows us into heaven. We have been ransomed. Number three, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ died and rose again in order to be Lord of all believers. Christ came from heaven to redeem us in order that we might, <clears throat> that he might be our Lord. Excuse me. Do you understand this? We must perhaps revise our concept of lordship. Christ did not die and rise again to purchase a race of slaves. He did not do that. So much preaching seems to be just exactly that. You're a slave to the Lord, and by that meaning, demeaning us into slavery as they've had in the past and still exists in places. This is not what he redeemed us for. He bought us and set us free. And his lordship, and in his lordship, there is freedom like only he can give us. And so very important. He did not buy us and make us do what we don't, to make us to do what we don't want to do. And uh, again, come under things like now you got to rise at four o'clock in the morning and pray for two or three hours and then get up and go about the Lord's work and do this and witness to everybody you know and all these kind of things. He didn't do that. He didn't do that for that kind of thing. No, he could work that God gave us and created us to do and created for us. So very important. No way can our life be fulfilled unless we're involved in the work that he has given us to do. And, and uh, that work is in so many different directions. Um, the meaning of lordship is found in the expressions of his love for us, totally manifested at the cross. Then we come to Jesus Christ as judge, and again we come into our human thinking and down to the pits we go again. <laughs> Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We belong to him and he is our judge and he will be judging. The weak judges a stronger brother for lack of faith in laws, while the stronger has contempt for his brother because of his lack of faith. Both are wrong. Jesus will be the judge of that. He will judge the one on his failure to believe the truth to set him free, and he will judge the other on his failure in humility that releases him from that contempt. We will all confess our lack of faith in area of our lives. And this is important, too. I don't know what we talked about that isn't, but anyway. Um, we have to um, think of the God of grace who is, and that we know in our heart in a practical way here in this world, and that we put God as judge in a different light. I totally believe that everything where we get off the mark in this world that we go to the Lord on and admit that and ask him to free us of the negative emotions of it, that's done. 
We're not going to be dealt with on that at the judgment seat of Christ. We're not. You see, what's a, what's a father do? Father, when, fathers, when, you, when your child gets off and does something he isn't supposed to, and you deal with him on it, and the child admits it and apologizes, and you reconcile, it's done. Anthony is fixing to leave home. I don't think Corey has a great big list for him that he's going to nail him with the day that he lives, leaves the house to go out on his own. Now, it's not there. These things have all been dealt with. And it's important for you and I to realize this as well. We, we, we put God on a lower plane than, than ourselves in this direction. He's not that kind of a judge. He's a, he's a discern, discerning judge. He can discern what our brother and sister are about, what's going on in their life, what they need. We can't. We don't know all their uh, stuff. We think we do, and I got kind of called on that more than once, and I imagine you have too. Like a good father, once it is dealt with, it is done to be remembered no more. And here again, the importance of that relationship that we have now. Our Father, our Lord is present. He's always listening to us, always wants to hear from us. And are we seeing the truth in our own lives that needs to be corrected? <clears throat> it is human thinking that believes our judgment will be of condemnation. This judgment, unlike human judging, is a positive one. Our Father will not allow us to go into eternity with the negative emotions. They won't be there. It won't be there. At the judgment seat, it's gone. Every regret, all of the stuff that we did wrong or didn't do that we should have done, it's gone. It, the negative emotions will not go into heaven. It's hard for us to imagine that. It's hard for us to believe that, but it's the truth. That's our God. We will be completely free of our past on Judgment Day. We will be judged on our responses of faith in carrying out the work that he has prepared for us here. We will be judged and rewarded according to the work as a faithful father, as a faithful mother, as the other works that he has us to do. Again, how important it is to God to have a faithful father in the home, a faithful mother in the home. This may be your life's work, and nothing may be more rewarding, more joy-filled when we do it in the Lord according to his way and his truth. God alone knows the work he has prepared for each one of us and whether or not we responded in faith to them. Our, our Father accepts us, but will never accept our belief as the truth, our lack of belief as the truth. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Again, a commentator, a close examination of our text in Romans shows that it refers chiefly, relate, chiefly to relations between Christians. It is sad to contemplate that one of the prevailing sins of Christians is a criticism and lack of consideration for fellow Christians. All our dealings with fellow Christians must be brought out at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The innuendo, slander, backbiting, envy, jealousy, gossiping, and lying among Christians is a first-class scandal. Christians even slander each other by the tone of voice in prayer. O Lord, we pray thee for dear brother so-and-so. Thou knowest how much he needs our prayers. From the tone, a stranger wonders what the dear brother has been up to and usually goes about trying to find out. (laughs) In fact, some Christians satisfy the carnal inclinations of their own nature by just such fleshly practices, and they think they are being spiritual. But all motives, all motives will be brought to light in the day of Christ. And here again, it'll be a sad day for many because so often the motive is to do for God to make him accept us when we're all already accepted, uh, to gain bounty points, to gain points. And, and I know of at least one man, that's his attitude, a supposed leader. We again must remember that God is judging both the strong and the weak. The weak is not to judge his stronger brother. The strong is not to set it naught, to despise, or to look down upon the weaker brother. The last phrase describes a belittling attitude of some believers towards others. Pride and arrogance toward fellow Christians are recorded by God and will be dealt with at the Lord's judgment throne. In view of the strength of the biblical language, one commentator wrote, I suppose the quarrels and differences among saints will form a large part of the judgment seat inquiry. What evils they have wrought, what appalling havoc, yes, what destructions. Tens of thousands have fallen under the burden that might have lived and served Christ happily, but for the pride, anger, cruelty, and malice of fellow believers. That's pretty strong, isn't it? In closing, we need to remember that our Lord came to the earth filled with grace and truth. The more we know him, the more we become like him, and the more we are filled with grace and truth. His harshest words were expressed towards those who misled people away from the truth, those who thought they were strong but had nothing but contempt for him and the weak. At the same time, Jesus had nothing but grace expressed towards those who believed. People like you and me and the Christians of our day, It was his very nature to extend his grace to others, to you and to me. When we make him Lord of our lives, we begin to be filled with that same grace and express it towards others. Grace to me, therefore to thee. Let us be known as people filled with grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come before you thanking you for who you are and the beautiful relationship that we have with you. Father, you're the most wonderful, beautiful, awesome, gracious Father that anyone could imagine. And we thank you that you are. Thank you that though we deserve death, you give us life and grace. And Father, again, we just... uh, Ask more and more, Father, that we look and, and uh, 
Treat others with the grace that you've treated others with. Father, that they may see you in us and want to be a part of your family as well. Father, thank you for our time together as we praise you in your wonderful name. Amen.